Thanks, Kerry, for the opportunity to be here with you guys tonight. Can you hear me out there? Awesome. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything in my life begins with my sobriety, and everything in my life ends without it. And it's pretty much that simple. Um, I'm going to tell you in a general way what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And I'm going to start by telling you a couple things. One is uh, my sponsor, one of my sponsors is Jim Clare. And Jimmy told me a long time ago to, to um, though everyone works the 12 steps hypothetically the same way through the book, um, come up with an analogy about your spirituality that makes sense to you. And don't be afraid to be unique, you know. We're allowed to use our brains. Um, and I had this idea back when I sobered up of this uh, a, a plumber's pipe, a good, fresh, clean um, plumber's pipe that passes fresh, clean water. And that analogy for me goes like this, that when I was a kid, I was like that fresh, clean water. When I started drinking um, and developing the disease of alcoholism, that water in that plumber's pipe started changing colors. It got yellow and then green, and it got thick and you know cloudy. And before you know it, that uh, there's a bunch of junk that was blocking off the water from flowing. And so the water stopped flowing in that plumber's pipe. That's what it was like when I was out there drinking, how I blocked myself off from my higher power through the physical craving in my body and the mental obsession in my head. The what happened is how I used the 12 steps to unblock that pathway, that plumber's pipe, so that the water could start flowing again. And the what it's like today is how I live in 10, 11, and 12 to keep the water as, as fresh and clean as I can keep it. Um, so that's number one. Number two is I used to, ha I still hate when people lead for like an hour and 10 minutes and they just give a long drunk -a log and they never actually explain the disease of alcoholism. They just talk about all the stupid things they did. I'm not going to do that. Um, my brother Tim and I used to drink all the time and Tim is not an alcoholic. He does not have a physical craving. He does not have a mental obsession. But he could probably stand up here and tell you some stupid stories. You know, but that's not what we're supposed to do. Um, my job is to explain the disease of alcoholism and how I recovered from it. So I'm going to do that. I started drinking when I was like 12 or 13 years old, like right before 13. And I grew up in Cleveland Heights, um, and I was not an alcoholic when I started drinking. The first night we went out drinking, I, I hated the taste of alcohol. I got sick, I got caught, I got grounded, and I was never going to drink ever again as long as I lived. Um, my never again was like 60 days. And uh, I remember that night, the second time we went out, we went down to a local Lawson's on Monticello, and we gave some guy like 25 bucks to get us a case of beer. It was Drury, which probably cost like $1.19 for the case. Um, but that was an equal exchange. We got the beer. It was what we wanted. And I went out. We like drank in some bushes, and I drank my buddies under the table. Um, and, and that night, I had this feeling that Bill talks about in Bill's story, this feeling of I have arrived. Um, now, I'm not alcoholic yet, but I love the effect produced by alcohol. I loved it. And I chased it. And I chased it, and I chased it. So here's what happened with me. I, um, I don't have a physical craving in my body, and I don't have a mental obsession in my head. So at 13, 14, 15 years old, um, I drank, and I drank, and I drank. And this is kind of what it was like for me physically. It was like my body was a bucket of water. And a beer is like a match. So you'd light the match and you throw it in the bucket of water and it just goes out. So I drink the first beer 
and then I would choose to drink the second beer, and I would choose to drink the third beer, and sometimes I'd choose to drink 10, and sometimes I'd stop at two, and sometimes I'd drink 15. Um, but I, I loved the effect produced by alcohol of being drunk, so I continually drank. And that's, that's what happened. I chose every drink that I was taking at, in those first couple years. Um, unique things were happening, though. By the time you know I was 14 years old, I was a continuous um, blackout drinker. Um, and I, by 15, I was a continuous hard drinker on the verge of full-blown late-stage alcoholism. So there are things that were changing that I was not aware of. Um, but I'll tell you, around 15, 15 years old, that bucket of water that my body had been where I could process alcohol like that turned into a, a bucket of lighter fluid. And now when I light a match and I throw it in the bucket, it explodes. And I can't predict what's going to happen once I put that first drink down. I'm going to drink the second, third, fourth, on and on and on until I pass out blackout or I do something stupid. And that's a very drastic change between those types of processing alcohol and not processing alcohol properly. And that's exactly what it felt like. So by about 15 years old, I couldn't predict what was going to happen once I put alcohol in my body, which is a sheer sign of, of alcoholism. So that's the physical craving. Once I put alcohol in my body, I, it's going to force me to drink the next and the next and the next. So now you couple that with the mental obsession and you're in a lot of trouble. But at 13, 14, 15, I did not have a mental obsession. I had nothing in my head that was telling me that I needed to go get drunk no matter what. And it wasn't lying every possible lie to get me to get to the first drink. I just, sometimes I'd go out drinking and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and so I did that for those first three years, and I chose every drink that I took because I was not beyond human aid. I had not lost the power of choice in drink, and therefore I chose when I drank and I chose when I didn't drink. So somewhere around 15, ironically, um, it kind of couples together, and I'd been lying for years, right? Because when you're drinking at 13 the way that I was drinking, you'd lie to everybody. I mean, I would tell you one thing and you something else and you something else, and I'd kind of forget who I told what to, and I'd just, you know, start over the next day and hit restart um, and go on with my life. Um, but I started not being able to tell the difference between the true and the false, and that's the sheer sign of the mental obsession. So here's what happened. I was like 15, and I would have a really bad night. I would throw up on a girlfriend or I would end up in the wrong backyard or in the wrong house, something would happen, I'd be embarrassed about it. I'd wake up the next day and I'd think, man, that was really awful. I'm not gonna drink tonight. And I wouldn't drink. It would be like not eating a Pop-Tart. It was like, who cares? I would choose not to drink and I wouldn't drink. Now fast forward the exact same fact pattern six months later, um, and I would go out and something bad would happen. I'd wake up the next day and I'd be embarrassed and I'd say, oh my God, I can't drink tonight. And, I, and like two hours later, my mind would say, well, I'm not gonna drink that much tonight. Maybe if I cut it in half, if I stopped at the 15th beer, that wouldn't have happened. Had I been drinking, you know, um, I don't know, Moosehead instead of Wild Irish Rose, that wouldn't have happened. If I wasn't with Benny, that wouldn't have happened. And my mind started doing all that it could to get me to that first drink. And to me, that's the mental obsession. And before I know it, um, no matter what was going on in my life, no matter what I put in my life to try to slow my drinking down or moderate my drinking or control my drinking, this mental obsession, this thought that blocks out all other thoughts would jump up and tell me some crazy idea of why it's gonna be okay to pick up the first drink. And I would pick up the first drink and I'd be off and running with that physical craving.
Um, so by 15 and a half years old, I was a full-blown late-stage alcoholic. Um, one of the one of the great things that is not in the big book is a math problem, which would have been a nightmare for us. That would have said you have to drink X amount of years times this type of alcohol equals an alcoholic. What the big book did masterfully is it said that everybody comes to this with different variables and at different times, but we all end up with the core same problem. We are powerless over alcohol because we have a physical craving and a mental obsession. Um, so some people develop that in six months, some people 16 months, some people 16 years, some people 40 years. But at some point we all develop that disease and that's the disease of alcoholism. So what that did is, is it set the stage for um, everything we know, right? The destruction of our lives in total. Um, and that's what proceeded to happen from that point forward. By 16, I'm spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead. And if you look at family albums, um, you know, when I was 12, I thought I could run the country better than Ronald Reagan. I wasn't, you know, uncomfortable under my skin at all. I could get along with everybody and anybody. And here, four short years later, I'm spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead. My eyes are black as coal. Um, and my mind is constantly telling me the lie that I can drink safely, even though I've already proven over and over and over that I can't drink safely. And then I pick up the first drink and the craving kicks in and I'm, you know, off doing all kinds of horrible things. So there you go. That's my drinking. So if you want a lot of boring stories, you're not going to get them. I mean, I'll tell you a couple nutshells of, of if I can categorize it together. I had probably 800 DUIs that I was never charged with during my drinking days. I have a laundry list of felonies I was never charged with. I physically and emotionally abused my father, my mother, my brother, my three sisters, and my old dog. Um, you know, I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And all of this almost always was associated with the mental obsession Tell me it'll be different this time. It'll be different this time. It'll be different this time. And it never was. Um, so that's alcoholism. I, uh, I very quickly went from a gifted and talented student at Heights High in ninth grade to like, I don't know, my 10th grade year, I think I got a 1.8. My 11th grade year is a 1.2. And I flunked out of Heights as a senior. Um, and I tell you that just because you can see sometimes in our lives how things are falling apart um, based on the disease. But I couldn't see it. I remember I, one time I had 5% in an algebra class, and I went back and I thought I could sweet talk the teacher into a 61%. And he was like, basically, he's like, you're an idiot. If, if you had a 59%, but not a 5 or a 9%. Um, but in my head, I could, I'd look at you and I had such a disregard for your humanity that I could manipulate you and make you do whatever I wanted you to do because I was me um, and I was spiritually bankrupt and a total egomaniac. So I, I go on my way. There's times when I, I thought I wanted to control my drinking because, you know, we sometimes can get glimpses that these, our lives aren't going the way we thought they were going to go. Um, so I would moderate it or I'd try to control it, but I was never going to not drink because it's my love of my life. I love the effect produced by alcohol. So I would do things like say, I'm just going to be a weekend warrior. Um, and that was usually on a Thursday night. So I'd be drinking on a Thursday night and, and I would tell myself I'm only going to drink on the weekends, right? So I'd wake up the next day and I'd, I'd gut it through the day and I couldn't wait until, um, I think it was 
five o'clock on MMS, you'd hear Born to Run. And that was like the open doors to total oblivion alcoholism for the next 48 hours. As long as you can hold out until you hear Springsteen's Born to Run, at five o'clock on Friday, you had a successful week. And then I drank for like 48 hours. And then Sunday night came, and I remember looking out towards the next weekend, and it seemed like, like, a, like a canyon between those two points. Five days seemed really, really far. Um, and I would gut it out sometimes, and sometimes I wouldn't. And basically, I failed miserably at controlling my drinking. I just couldn't do it, because the mental obsession um, put me in a position where I, I was beyond human aid, meaning my brain, and I'd lost the power of choice in drink, which means I'm going to drink no matter what. So I turned 18 years old somehow, and I entered my phase-out drinking. And all that means is I just, I had tried and I was miserable and my life was over and I knew it. At 4.30 in the morning when I was, you know, the last guy standing and I was crying in my beer, I knew I was a full-blown late-stage alcoholic. Um, but then the next day the mental obsession would kick in and tell me that there's new resolve, there's fresh resolve, it'll be different this time. But if someone watched me crying in my beer at 4.30 in the morning and came up, if Carrie said, boy, you looked kind of sad there, maybe, maybe you need to get some help. That was the last conversation that I had with her. I cut everybody off until at the end I had just my, this girlfriend and a couple friends that, that could tolerate drinking with me. Um, so I'm going to bring you up to that. I'm, I'm going through the end of my drinking and uh, one of my nastiest blackouts, I, in February of 87 in the middle of a blackout, or in the middle of a blizzard and a blackout, I remember laying out a map on a pool table at midnight because um, I was going to go fight some guy in New Jersey um, who I'd just gotten off the phone with, and he clearly was an a-hole, so I needed to drive to New Jersey to let him know. Um, and so 8.30 in the morning, I come out of a blackout, and you know how we do it. Like, you come out, and, and I'm holding the wheel, and I'm driving down the highway with this weapon. Um, I have no recollection of those eight hours other than the fact that I kindly, vaguely remember driving most of the way. I had my drunk buddy passed out in the passenger seat, a case of beer that was empty, a case of Sprite that we hadn't opened, two baseball bats, and a stolen car. Um, and when you drink like that, you know, you, you kind of get, you have that initial shock of, oh my God, what, where am I? What is this? How do you piece this stuff together? And we figured out where we took the car from, and uh, it was a felony. I was never charged with it because we put the car back where we found it. Um, but the thing that was so fascinating to me after I sobered up was I was really irritated. I was 18 years old, and I had a case of Sprite in the car, and that probably cost like 10 bucks. And that's worth, I mean, how much Schaefer beer can you buy with $10 in 1987? And it was bothering me. Why do we have this? And somewhere on, like, near Akron or something on our way back, I remembered, oh, last night at midnight, I thought, you know, I need protection from the state troopers. So if I'm cruising down the road and we get pulled over and a cop, by the time he walks from his car, which I must have thought was like a mile away, to my car... <laughs> Um, I'll just drink Sprite, and he'll never know that I was drinking. And that's the way I live my life. It's just a complete farce. Um, so that's me at the end. I have this girlfriend, and she and I were an incredibly lovely, wonderful, alcoholic couple. We probably cheated on each other like ten times apiece, and 
It was just bliss. Um, the one thing that was amazing about this woman that was more important than anything else once I got honest later was that she was a big cokehead. And that's significant for me because I'm a drunk. And that's what I did. I am a drunk, drunk, drunk. And as long as I had this girl in my life who was a big drug addict, she was my human shield. And every time people looked at us and said, those two are trouble and they need to get help, I would put her in front of me and say, you're right, she does. Let's help her. Um, and in May of 87, and I'm at the end of the point where I'm desperate for something and I don't know what it is, but I know my life is ending and it's coming soon. And uh, they threw an intervention on this girl while we were eating dinner. I'm with her parents and her and me and I've got like a mouthful of chicken and seven AAs walk in and they throw this intervention in front of me and you know, like blew my mind. Um, and, and I'll tell you, not one time in a million do you want the drunk boyfriend or a drunk spouse to watch an intervention. But they knew me, and I was the type of guy that would tell her, I would slip her a note somehow and say, rendezvous in 97 days in the Arctic Circle. Um, and I would show up. So they wanted to know where I was. They kept an eye on me. They threw this intervention on her, and it worked on me and not her. That's what happened. That night, I knew I did not need to die from the disease of alcoholism. Now, I had a window of opportunity because I'm listening to these people and I hear something profound that I'd never heard before. Um, and if you guys are like me, we balk. You know, I had that window and I thought, I'm going to go to Al-Anon and save her life. And so that's what I did. Two days later, I went to an Al-Anon meeting and I was going to save this girl's life. Um, and what I was really doing was making sure all the spies in Al-Anon were like had some distance so no eyeballs were looking at my drinking. And so I walk into this Al-Anon meeting and a couple guys immediately like did 10 steps, right? They started praying for me. It looked really uncomfortable. Um, and I felt like I was um, a Russian spy walking into the CIA. And what I found out, one of these guys came up and after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, he pulled me aside and said, we're really trying, but we just can't have you here tonight. And you don't even remember it. But six months ago, you walked into this Al-Anon meeting and you disrupted the whole thing. So we need you to go where you belong, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. And we love you, but you really, we're not going to love you here. We'll love you there. <laughs> and so I got kicked out of Al-Anon. Um, and I went to the Borton group. And when I went into the Borton group that, that first night, and I was still drinking, I sat right here. Um, and I heard, I heard four things. I heard... I got to get a sponsor who's like a teacher. I got to go to A meetings, which are classrooms. I got to get a big book, which is a textbook. And I got to work the 12 steps if I want to recover from the disease of alcoholism. And I thought that was great information. And what I did that night is I said, wow, that's really great information. And because you people are so sick, that's exactly what you need to do. I've just spent 61 minutes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank you, because now I know my problem. I have words for it. I am an alcoholic. How awesome is that? Now that I know I'm an alcoholic, I'm just not going to drink. I see that you guys have crappy donuts and coffee. And I've never had coffee in my life. There's coffee in the back of the room. And you have your knitting club or whatever you do here. Um, but I, you don't need me for this. I'm out. I'll see you suckers on the other side. And I went out that night and I was drunk the next day. Because the mental obsession is a thought that overtakes all other thoughts. And my mind constantly told me the lie that it'll be different this next time. 
And I did that for six weeks until June 28th of 87. So I've been sober 30 years, nine months, and 22 days. One day at a time, mostly because of steps 10, 11, and 12. So here's what I did. I, um, I despised people like me in the program. I didn't want to talk to anyone who wanted to talk about the book or the steps. When they would ask, do you have a sponsor? I'd say yes, and they'd say who? And I would say, that guy. Um, what step are you on? All of them. I just, I was killing myself in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so here's what I did. My first eight weeks sober, I went to a lot of meetings, and I did nothing else. Um, and, and this is my story. After being dry in Alcoholics Anonymous for two months, I had never wanted to commit suicide more in my entire life. And it's really simple. Alcohol was my solution to every problem I ever faced. Now alcohol has been removed from me, and I haven't replaced it with a new solution. That new solution must be a higher power through the process of the 12 steps. And until I do that, I've got the mental obsession cruising through my head telling me to pick up the first drink. That's why they tell us to get into the steps um, when we sober up. And so that night, I asked a guy to sponsor me, Jack um, Hallisey, and he immediately brought me down to night and day, and they took me through the first three steps. So what they did is they opened the big book, and we looked at the doctor's opinion, and they explained through their own drinking the physical craving and the mental obsession, and I related to it. And now I had more words. I, oh, so what's happening to me physically when this craving kicks in, okay, I got it, I have a physical craving. Um, and I remember asking Jim that night, well, if I can only crave alcohol when it's in my body, so when you detox after a couple days and you process alcohol out of your system, the physical craving is arrested. That's not the physical craving after that, it's the mental obsession. So I would ask him, well, how do I keep getting drunk then? Why would I get drunk after five or 12 or 14 days? Sometimes I didn't drink for 18 days. Um, but I would always make my way back to it. And that, again, is the mental obsession. If there's anyone in the room who's ever relapsed, or you know anyone in the room who's relapsed, 100% of the time we do it sober. We're sober when we relapse. So there's something in our heads that's telling us that it's going to be different this time, or it's a flat-out suicide and we just don't care and we drink. But that all happens before the first drink. So the steps are designed to deal with this before the first drink, not the first drink. If we put the focus on the mental obsession and recovery from that, it makes a lot more sense. So that night I, I learned my first step. I was powerless over alcohol because of my body and my mind. And what I learned that night is I had a little bit of hope before I talked to these guys. And by the end of the conversation, I felt hopeless. I just thought they'd put the final nail in the coffin for me. Um, and that was the first step for me, that I am utterly powerless in and of myself. I am always going to drink. We went immediately to the second step that came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And they told me we don't have to have faith in God. In step two, we don't even have to necessarily believe in a higher power. The keystone is, are you willing? Are you willing to believe that maybe there's a higher power out there that can relieve that mental obsession that prevents you from staying sober? And I was willing to believe that there's a higher power that could do that. So I made that mental conclusion. We went on to step three. In three, they said, I'm going to make this decision um, to turn my life and my will over to this higher power. My life is my actions, and my will is my mind. Um, we looked at pages 60 to 63 in the book, and I, they explained to me that I was filled with self-centeredness and self-will run riot. 
Um, and, and it was great. I totally understood it um, as much as I could at that time. The most important thing they did to me with step three is they didn't complicate it. I've heard for years and years and years people talking about doing like a perfect third step or reciting it for six months or, or like you're turning this huge burlap sack of your soul over to God in step three. And none of that is the case um, in the book. The big book doesn't tell us that at all. So if you turn it around into a question, the question is this. Do you want to change the way that you think and the way that you act? If the answer is yes, that's the decision. I'm going to make a decision to change. The turn it over means change. That's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So step three was never meant to be uncoupled from the action steps of four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and that's how the big book reads. So after, after the third step, and I did my third step with my sponsor, my co-sponsors, back in um, August of 1987. They showed me the bottom of the book on page 63. It says next, which means now. We launched on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which was a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision, step three, was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. So the big book tells me that after the third step, I'm still blocked off from God. I cannot access my higher power in steps one, two, and three because of my fear, my guilt, my shame, my remorse, the horror, all that stuff that came together that block off that, that plumber's pipe is all in the pipe. All I did was make a decision to get rid of it, but I didn't do anything until I actually do the work. So that was huge for me, and I started upon my fourth step immediately because of that. I, um, I knew that the only path forward because of what they were telling me was through those next next six steps to to punch through that garbage to access that higher power that can relieve that mental obsession so in the fourth step um, they told me I've got three basic instincts of life I have a social instinct I just like to be liked I have a, um, a security instinct I like to know that Carrie's not about to plunge a knife in my back um, and a sexual instinct which for the most part just means the perpetuation of the human race right <laughs> But because I'm so self-centered, if you threaten me, me in one of those three areas, I'm going to react in one of three ways. I'm going to resent you, I'm going to fear you, or I'm going to harm you. Or I might do all three. Um, and that's what we look at in the fourth step. There's four columns of the fourth step. And when they gave me the instructions, I, I feel like I'm an anomaly in this, because uh, most people I've heard in the program don't have this response. But I couldn't wait to do my fourth step because you just asked me to list everybody I hate. So I thought, this is awesome. And I wrote, bam, like Tom, Dick, Harry, Harry's dog, Harry's cat, Harry's goldfish. And I went all the way down the list and I just felt empowered. And they said, all right, are you done? And I was like, yeah. And they said, all right, column two, what is the cause? And I thought, the cause? I'm, I get to tell you why these people screwed me over, screwed me over, stole my money, stole my girlfriend, stole my dog, and just ripped my way down through the second column. And I'm like, bring it on. And then they said, here's the third column. You know, how does this, how does this situation affect you? And I thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Nothing affects me. I have no fears in my life. There's no self-esteem issues, blah, blah, blah. Then we went back to the book, and I chunked my way through it. And it was really uncomfortable. And by then, I hated the fourth step. And I was really tired after the third column. And then he's like, you're doing a good job. But there's one more. 
So we looked at page 67. It was, you know, what was the exact nature of your wrong in this situation? I turned to Jack Halsey and I said, you're not listening to me. I just told you why all these people screwed me over. And they just said, you're not listening to us. It's not about the other people. It's about you. Where were you selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, and full of fear in this situation? And man, that was rough. I, uh, I, I chucked this stuff down and I wrote it down. And at that point, I, um, I had entered a new phase of my sobriety. I did the rest of the fourth step in the same manner. I'm focusing a lot on that fourth column of the fourth step. What became my, what was introduced to me as my character defects. So I did my fifth step with my sponsor a couple days later, and I had a two-way discussion with this guy. And it wasn't just me again, just unloading all my garbage. And it's like the the AA three-hour Starbucks conversation where, hey, Carrie, how are you? Well, I'm not doing so well. You want to talk about it? And we talk for three hours, and like nothing ever happens, right? Um, that's kind of what I thought the fifth step would be like. But what I wanted to do was talk about my girlfriends, and Jack wanted to talk about my character defects. And I wanted to talk about how my family was so crazy, and he wanted to talk about my character defects. And before I knew it, this whole conversation came over to the fourth column of the fourth step. And, and I literally thought that when I started my fourth step and, and went into the fifth step, probably, I don't know, 99% of it was your fault. And by the time I was done with my fifth step, I understood clearly that 99% of what I'd written down and just talked about was of my own fault. And it's real simple. If it wasn't for me being selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, full of fear, I never would have been resenting you the way that I was. And if it wasn't for my character defects, I would never have been in that state of fear that I was in with you. And if it wasn't for my character defects, I never would have been harming you the way that I was harming you. Therefore, it really was of my own making. Um, and that was eye-opening to me. So after my fist up, I'm, I'm properly armed with um, this information. I've met somebody who I don't like, looking in the mirror, somebody I've never met before, someone who, quite frankly, I was disgusted with, but someone with whom I could form a baseline. This could be the beginning of a relationship with myself moving forward. On page 75, it says, after the fist step, take an hour. Um, and it says, just go over the first five steps to make sure you haven't left anything out if you're not lying about anything. And, you know, I point that out because it's the only place in the big book where it tells us to wait on working the 12 steps. And it doesn't say six months or a month or a day. It just says take an hour. And, and I, I, I believe they're telling us that because I'm acutely aware of what my problem is after my fifth step. It's my character defects. Um, so if I'm going to ask God to remove them, be willing to get rid of them in six and ask God to remove them in seven, I need to know what I'm talking about. If you guys really, there's like a through point in the steps that a lot of people miss. So in the fourth column of the fourth step, I learn my character defects. In the fifth step, I talk about my character defects. In six, I'm willing to get rid of my character defects. In seven, I ask God to remove my character defects. In eight, I make a list of the people I harm because of my character defects. In step nine, I make amends to people because of my character defects. In step 10, I inventory my character defects throughout the day. Because I'm not perfect, in step 11 at night, I inventory my character defects again. And then in step 12, I'm supposed to be taking these defects and turning them into assets. So almost everything I need to be doing on a daily basis is centered around me taking these character defects and turning them into assets. Um, and for me, that's one of the most important things that the steps can do for us. So I was willing to have God remove these things, and I did my seven-step prayer. And after I did that seven-step prayer, I jumped up, and that plumber's pipe, um, all that junk inside, 
had rattled and started moving and the water was moving again. And this is not water you would want to drink. It was still really yellow and gross, um, but the water was moving. So there's some kind of spiritual response that was beginning in my life. And I, uh, I turned to Jack and, and I had that twinkle in my eye and he said, I know what you're thinking and you're wrong. Um, and, I, I, and I said, what? I mean, I just asked God to remove the character defects so they're gone. I'll never be afraid or selfish or dishonest ever again. And he said, that's exactly what I thought you were thinking and you're wrong. Um, you're going to have character defects come up every single day for the rest of your life. Now you have two more tools in that spiritual kit of tools to use on a daily basis when these character defects come up. And I thought, man, A is hard. This is, it should be easier than that. Um, and the last thing I needed to do was eight and nine. So I, I made a list of, um, of the people I had harmed in three columns. Uh, and it was like this. Now, like two names later and never and I I sat down with him and I showed him my list and and Jim Clare sat with me and it was like oh no 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 and it ended up being like now later and never I think I had two names on the never column and I started to go out face to face to make direct amends and direct amends to me has always meant face to face uh, it's not appropriate for me to send people letters about how badly I screwed their lives over I literally never sent a letter ever when I was drinking. Therefore, it's not an appropriate channel for me to go make amends. We, we always know that there's maybe a situation where you have to send a letter, or someone might have to do a graveside amends, or whatever, right? There's sometimes we can't see people, but if you allow me to determine when I don't have to look into your eyes to make amends, it's 100%. I'm never gonna look in your eyes and admit that I'm wrong. Um, I needed to go back and tell you directly to your face, it was wrong that I did what I did. If there's anything I can do, reasonable restitution, please let me know, and I'm gonna attempt to do it. Um, and that was a really humbling and important experience for me. So early in sobriety, I'm working my way through the first nine steps, which is all about cleaning up the wreckage of the past. But while that's happening, the present is happening. And we need tools for the present, which is 10, 11, and 12. Um, and so I launched out onto steps 10, 11, and 12. I'm going to touch that just real quick. Step 10 says, continue to take personal inventory and when we are wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 10 is um, steps four through nine, all wrapped up into one step. And there's a couple things you'll hear in the room sometimes that are just wrong, um, according to the big book. And one of them is that you do your 10 step at night before you go to bed. That's, that's part of the 11 step. That's not the 10th step. And if you look at the page numbers, it'll actually confirm that. It's literally part of the 11th step. What it means is all throughout the day, if I'm feeling off or I'm feeling like I'm about to yell at someone or I already have yelled at somebody, I can access the 10th step. It takes like two or three minutes to do. And again, there's six parts. And I just, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We didn't have cell phones back in the day. Now we can text it. It's so much easier than what we used to have to do. Um, and, and what I found out early in sobriety was it really sucks to do a 10-step after I hurt you because I have to go back and formally make amends to you. And it really sucks to do the 10-step halfway through hurting you because I still need to make amends to you. What if I can do the 10-step before I open my mouth and I hurt you? What if I can change the way that I think and the way I behave and the way that I interact with the world through the 10-step as I'm gearing up before I yell at you? That's the beauty of the 10th step. 
Um, so let me just give you an example of one that I'm going through. I, um, like a stupid one. I, at work, we've got personalities and politics. Go figure, right? <laughs> um, and I've got this team that I have to rely on to do some work, and they're not doing a good job. So I'm resentful. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Carrie, and I'm going to do it. So in four, am I being selfish? I don't know. I, I think I am because I'm, I'm getting really steamed up about it, and I'm internalizing it, this situation. Am I dishonest? Yeah, because I'm, I'm not taking into account that he's got a lot on his plate, too. So maybe I'm changing the facts and the circumstances in order to win the argument of the day. Am I resentful? Yes. Am I afraid? I actually do feel a little bit afraid of this situation because it's not comfortable to be at, at odds with people you work with. Wow. All of a sudden, my character defects, all of them have popped up in this situation. I haven't opened my mouth yet. So I tell Carrie, hey, this is what's going on. That's five, six. And am I willing to have God remove it? Yes, seven. God, please remove these character defects so I can be of service to this guy. Eight, am I willing to change? Yeah, what, what can I change? All right. I can change my facial expression when I'm looking at him. I can change my voice. I can take a breath. I can change my expectations. I can change my attitude. I can change my perspective. There's a thousand things that we can change in that part of the 10 step right before I step on this guy. And then I'm much less likely to step on this guy. At the end of the 10 step, it says we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. So who would that be? This guy. So now I'm gonna build a bridge to this guy because I did a 10 step instead of taking his head off. That's the beauty of the 10 step. Now I'll give you a harder one. You will find out um, right now that I've gone through one of the most horrific nightmares that you would ever imagine going through in your life. Um, and what I find is it's a really isolating, isolating trauma that most people don't know how to deal with who haven't been through it. And so I get a lot of advice that is unwarranted, um, not wanted. And, uh, and it comes out um, from a place of love and you know, unintentionally trying to irritate me, but it isolates me further when I hear certain things with people that haven't gone through what I've just gone through. So, am I being selfish? Yes, I've, I've internalized that. Am I being dishonest? Am I changing things? Um, no, not really. What I've gone through is one of the hor most horrific things you could ever go through. Um, and other people who have not gone through it really do not know what they're talking about. So I'm very honest about that. Am I resentful? Yes, very resentful. Am I afraid? Yeah, because I love you guys and I'm getting isolated and I hate being isolated with this, but I have to pick the right people to be able to talk about this stuff um, and, and set the right boundaries in my life. So my character defects have popped up before anyone even says anything. So Carrie, this is what's going on. That's five, six, I'm willing, seven, God and Kaylee. Please remove my character defects so that I can be open to you, God, and to you, my daughter. And please help me do everything in my power in this moment to be loving and kind and respectful. Okay, eight, am I willing to change something? Yes, what can I change? I can breathe. I can change my expectations in the moment. Thank God other people who haven't gone through this can't contemplate it. Um, I can change my attitude. I can be loving. I can tell you when I'm sad and when I'm struggling. And I can change my perspective. And here I don't have to run around um, pushing people away who I'm afraid are about to say the wrong thing to me like, and please don't say this to me, this too shall pass because the death of a child doesn't pass. 
um, or time will heal all wounds because the further away I get from Kaylee's physical death, the harder it gets. Um, so I don't need that. I'm an emotionally intelligent human being who's been sober 30 years and I actively work the 12 steps one day at a time for that whole period of time. And I have people who can help me. So I bring that up because we sometimes in AA think that we've got a license to go tell everybody everything in the world and we have no idea what we're talking about. We're not marriage counselors and they're sex therapists. Like, what are we talking about? What we're supposed to do is guide people back to the 12 steps. Um, and they, with their higher power, will figure out what they need to do with their lives. Um, and that's what I do with my guys. Whenever they ask me, of, what should I do? I tell them, do your 10 step and you figure it out. I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do. So that's 10 step. Step 11 is its sister step, and uh, it tells me I need to do this in the morning, at night, and all throughout the day. Um, and so I wake up, and I'm an undisciplined alcoholic. So I open up to page 86 in the morning, and I, I, I do my morning 11th step. And since August 18th, my 11th step has taken on a different, um, a different flavor, and I bring my daughter into my 11th step with devotion and intention. And I say, Good morning, Kaylee. We got another day in front of us. Um, I love you, sweetheart, more than anybody in the world. You're one of the most incredible souls I've ever known. Please, you and God, grant me another 24 hours of sobriety today. And please be a, an interwoven part of the fabric of what I do today. Please show me the beauty and the strength of our relationship and my sobriety and who I am as a human being by how I think and I speak and I act how I work the 12 steps with the world and how I, how I show others how to do it. And I go through that process. I have been journaling a lot because it's important right now. Um, and when I go throughout the day when I get stuck and I get stuck 12 to 20 times a day with the trauma at times and I will stop um, and I'll do the 11th step which just pulls me back into the moment. And when I go to bed at night, I open back up to page 86 which just gets mistaken as that 10 step, but I'm not perfect. So it, I'm not going to remember every time I've screwed up during the day. But at night, it says when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. I can kind of go through that and figure out when, I've, when I didn't catch something during my waking hours. Um, and then I do a second meditation at night with her, and I make sure I get my daddy-daughter time every day, which is something I've always done. There's one last thing I'm supposed to do on a daily basis, which is step 12. And it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. The 12th step is written in past tense. So it tells us by the time we've gotten to it, I will have had a spiritual experience. Now, I didn't know if that was a tour of Pluto or burning incense or, you know, flying around on magic carpets. I had no idea what you guys were talking about. And it really scared me. Some of the tech, some of the terms in the big book I just didn't understand and Jimmy showed me in the third edition on 569 the idea of a spiritual experience spiritual awakening it's a psychic change in my brain sufficient to bring about recovery all that means is that mental obsession that prevents me from staying sober is removed as a result of the 12 steps and that's what's happened as I continue to grow on a daily basis particularly with 10 11 and 12 and keep that that pathway clear to my God um, I, the mental obsession remains removed. 
It doesn't mean we're not gonna have a crazy thought zip over the wire every once in a while, but when that happens, we have steps, we have people, we have meetings, and we have God. And we mobilize and we do our work. Um, it says in the middle to carry this message, and the message is the 12 steps out of the big book. And I've been doing this a long time, and I always know there's someone in the room that after I get to like three chronologically, they, the light bulb goes on that I'm probably gonna be one of those guys that goes through all 12 and they get mad. And I don't really care. I really, I could care less. And the reason why is this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous is the 12 steps out of the big book, and that's where the fellowship came from. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. If we can't talk about the 12 steps here, then we shouldn't be doing anything here. Um, since practice these principles in all of our affairs, I know a lot of people in this room tonight, there's a lot of you I don't know, and if, if I sound like a little Johnny AA and I've got a big book and I know how to articulate the steps, I'm very aware of that, and I have a tie on so I could look like a big fraud if I was out on the street cheating on my wife and kicking the dog and embezzling money and doing all the things that I shouldn't be doing. Um, I need to be walking what we talk about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I do. This is sacred ground for me. And I, I do everything I can to be accountable in Alcoholics Anonymous um, and to understand the unique gift that we have. You know, Carrie and I sobered up in 87. And there were about 80 people who sobered up when we did within that couple month period of time. And there are five of us who are still sober. Five. It's amazing. But that's pretty close to 5%. Um, and that's what it tells us. Everyone in this room has a 100% chance of staying sober one day at a time if we do our work. But what happens is there's off-ramps. People don't do the work. They, there's off-ramps, 50 off-ramps a day. And if we're not careful, we're going to take one of those off-ramps. So I, I try to stay right in the middle of the bed in Alcoholics Anonymous, which for me, again, is the book and the steps. So I'm going to tell you what my life is like really quick. Um, I... Uh, I flunked out of high school. I told you I flunked out of college early in sobriety. I did that four times, I think, maybe five. And when I was about two and a half years sober, I came back to Jack and I had my report card. And we opened it together and I had a 51% big F, right? And I said, I'm done. You told me to dare to dream. I dreamed that I could go through school and I just, I can't, I keep flunking. And he said one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. He said, last quarter, you had a 38% in this class. Your Fs are getting better. And, and I just thought, like, only in AA are you going to hear something that stupid. Um, and a minute later, after I, you know, was mad at him, and I thought about it, and he was right. Like, we take baby steps sometimes in AA, and we don't want to look at them. We, don't, we want the big ticket. I want, we want to win a $100 million lottery ticket instead of finding 20 bucks at our feet. And the reality was I was getting close, dangerously close to that D. Um, and I took one more course, and I got a D. And that started me on my way to, um, to dare to dream that I can get through my undergrad, and I went to law school, and I'm a practicing lawyer today. I, I tell you that only because I, we dare to dream um, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Doesn't mean the dreams are always going to work, and there's plenty of things that I've tried to do that haven't worked including taking the New York bar. I took the New York bar and paid like four grand to take that test and walked away empty-handed. But I was 12 years sober, and I remember walking out of that room thinking, so what? I am 12 years sober. I'd flunked out of high school, and I just took the hardest test to become a lawyer in the entire country. That's awesome. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. So you got to dare to dream. 
I, um, I met my wife when I was six years sober, and Jessica is sacred ground to me. She is not an alcoholic, thank God. She's one of those earthy people, and, and she's just sacred. Jessica is sacred. She didn't need to date a guy six years sober in AA and fall in love with me and dare her entire future on me doing the work, but she did. That's courageous. I don't know if I would have done that. She believed in Alcoholics Anonymous. She believed in the 12 steps, and she believed that if I did what I did one day at a time, I wouldn't destroy her life. That's pretty cool. Um, Jessica is sacred, and it's another reminder that my sobriety is not mine. My sobriety is others' sobriety. My sobriety is my wife's. My sobriety is my kids'. My sobriety is yours. Um, and that's how I approach it. Kaylee was born in May of 2002, and Nathaniel in January of 05. I prepared 15 years in AA to be a dad, and I'm a great father. I was in the dirt with my kids every single day. I, I changed my career around. I did everything to be with my kids, and because of that, I have an amazing relationship with both of them. And uh, in August, on August 17th, eight months ago, my beautiful baby girl, my 15-year-old, was just trying to cross the street in Cleveland Heights to go get her shoes um, and stepped out from behind a telephone pole and was hit by a car. And her head hit the street. And her friend called me before she called 911 because we're the cool parents and I know all her friends. And I ran to the scene and I had one minute with Kaylee, unconscious, with a pulse, telling her, Kaylee, I love you. Your daddy's here. I love you. I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm right here. You're going to be okay. And I cradled my daughter and she died in my arms. Now, um, I had just celebrated my 30th anniversary. I never, ever in my life would have imagined that that was about to happen to me and to my family. And I will tell you what I did because of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of the way that you guys wired me. I laid in the street with my daughter and I prayed with her and I told the police, you need to step back and I'm laying with my daughter and we're praying. And I sat with her and I said, sweetheart, you're with God now. And our relationship just inverted. No longer do you need my guidance, but I need yours. I need you with me. And I know you're in the light and you're a badass. And I know, I know your power. I can already feel it. And I, uh, I went to the hospital. They, I met her at the hospital an hour later and I sat with her for three hours and I, I just ran my fingers through her hair and I held her hand and I did her last rites knowing that my entire life had just been destroyed um, with the loss of this incredible kid physically in my life. And I went home and I slept two hours and I woke up planning a funeral for one of my children. And the first thing I did is I called my friend Carly, this really important part of my support group. And I said, get your big book open. We're doing my 11th step. And we wailed our way through my 11th step that first morning. And I showed my guys by an example. I, no matter what happens in this world, we do our work. 
We do our work. There's no excuses. We have a million excuses why we don't have to do the work. But if you want to stay sober, you do your work no matter what. And I did it. And I did 10 steps all throughout the day. And I cried and I wailed and I struggled. But I will tell you, because of what we do on a daily basis, if we do it, the world opens up in ways that we could never, never have imagined. Um, and so now I go through the trauma, you know, of this, the, the physical loss of, of my beautiful girl. Um, and every day is a new challenge. There's like a thousand deaths a morning for me. But at the same time, when I flip that coin, Kaylee and I are on this incredible, miraculous spiritual journey together. And I, I feel her with me every day. I talk to her every day, and she is a living, breathing part of my life. That doesn't happen without the 12 steps. Um, and I will tell you from my experience, that's exactly, the, that's exactly what I need to be doing. She would tell me very clearly, and she does often, do your work, stay open, stay receptive, and let's grow one day at a time. And that's what I do. So if there's anybody out there who, you know, I have a guy who wanted me to help him. He's been relapsing for 30 years. And I told him I was leading tonight. And he said, I'm not going there. <laughs> All right. So it might be another 30 years of relapsing. I, the reality is we have to do our work. You guys know plenty of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have died from this disease. We don't have to, like, go out to the street to find people dying of the disease of alcoholism. They're here. They're in our rooms who are dying from the disease of alcoholism. My prayer is for all of us to live one day at a time until the day that we die um, and know that no matter what happens in life, if we do the work, we can stay sober one day at a time. Um, I'm sorry it was a little longer than usual. Carrie, thank you so much. I love you guys. Let's um, do the Our Father.